I'm amazed at how many times I'm guiding where people are fighting fish and I'll say, keep stripping, keep stripping, keep stripping. And they go, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bring the fly line in the guides. And why not? You know, <laughs> why wouldn't you do that? You have to, to get the fish close enough to land it. And they, well, it'll hang up. No, it won't. You're using my rig and it's going to go right through like it doesn't exist. There's no knot there. That was Lance Egan describing how his leader setup can help you land your next fish. Back to the Euro game today on the wet fly swing fly fishing show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Go to wetflyswing.com slash swingnation if you're interested in checking out upcoming hosted steelhead trips this season. In today's episode, I talk with Lance Egan about Euronymphing, fly tying, and Team USA. Lance gives us his top 10 Euronymph uh, tips, the best hook for the Euro game, and the amazing fly that put the elk hair caddis in the corner. Don't miss this one as Lance tells us why he cuts the loops off of his lines and why he hates the, hey, hey, that's Lance Egan right there, story. So, without further ado, here's Lance Egan from flyfishfood.com. How's it going, Lance? I'm well. How are you, Dave? Good. Good. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. We were just uh, chatting there a second. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, you work for the Fly Fish Food guys, or you guys are, you got your, I think it's a three-person crew, and, and I've had uh, Curtis on in the past episode here, but I'm hoping to dig into, you know, your background in Euronymphing and Team USA, but um, maybe before we get to all that, you can just talk about how you first got into fly fishing. Uh, sure. Yeah. Fly fishing for me is an interesting thing or just fishing in general. Cause I don't come from a family of anglers. My dad doesn't fish. My grandfathers didn't fish. Uh, I just kind of always was drawn to fishing. And, uh, so I first got into conventional style fishing when I was quite young. And then, uh, somewhere in my early teen years started tying flies and got interested in fly fishing. Uh, I had a friend, a neighbor named court who, uh, got a fly tying kit for Christmas one year. And uh, the two of us were pretty enamored with it. And my my mother luckily recognized that I had an interest there and got me my own set of, of tying tools and materials. And and uh, I kind of really started tying flies before I ever fly fished and then just grew to love fly fishing from there. Hmm. And you've been doing it ever since now. And you've got – now you've got your own – I mean, the I guess the Team USA, which we'll, we'll dig into a little bit, that's been a big part of your career. Um, I mean, do you have a couple of mentors – I mean – other than if your family didn't get you into it, other than this this person along the way, have there been a number of people that have helped you get to where you are? Oh, sure, definitely. Yeah, I've, I've worked uh, in fly shops basically since high school, so I've had lots of, of you know influencers, if you will. Uh, I started in a little shop that's that's no longer in business, but uh, here in Utah, that was called Willow Creek Outfitters, and uh, Andrew Benson and Dave Cornell were the owners there, and they were kind enough to let a young, uh, inexperienced fly fisher work for them and, and uh, take me under their wing a little bit. They they uh, showed me a lot about fly tying and uh, and that sort of stuff and, and kind of just got me my start in the fly fishing world. And then I moved from there to a place called Fish Tech that's still in business in Salt Lake and, uh, and doing well and thriving. Uh, I worked there for Mickey Anderson, Byron Gunderson, and uh, Brian Jarvis. And most of the Utah folks will know uh, those guys because they've been in the fishing realm in, in the greater Salt Lake area for, I don't know how long, like 40 years, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a long time. Yeah. 
so it was really cool to work with them and some of their other employees there also and uh, get exposed to, you know, just just uh, understanding of gear and understanding of techniques and that sort of stuff. Um, I really didn't fish with them very much. I fished with uh, Byron's son, Jim, a little bit and a couple of the other employees that would kind of come and go. Um, but just being able to be around people who had a lot of fishing understanding certainly helped me a lot. Um, you know, Mickey in particular is always one that was, uh, was and still is willing to answer dumb questions from a, a guy that's always trying to learn and, and, uh, and filled them in a way that, that makes you not feel dumb, you know, to help you understand stuff. And, and he's still a great friend and, and a fun guy to fish with. Um, and then, uh, I moved from there to Cabela's and, um, Cabell's is a little bit different. I, I didn't work with uh, lots of people that were teaching me tons of things, but I worked with really great guys that we would we would fish together and have a lot of fun and shoot ideas around. Um, while I was at Cabela's, uh, a couple of, of well, one former and, and one current teammate from Team USA worked there as well, Ryan Barnes to begin with, who is a former Team USA guy. He and I would fish together a bunch. And then Devin Olson, who you've also had on the mm -hmm. podcast, I believe. Yep. Uh, De Devin worked there with us for a little while, and uh, so we got to fish together and got to bounce ideas off each other, and you know, share fly patterns and techniques and all that kind of good stuff. And then from there, I moved to where I am now, which is Fly Fish Food with Cheech and Curtis, and uh, the rest of the gang there. So now I have, uh, you know, the the largest fly tying collection I've ever been around uh, at my disposal, oh, yeah. and uh, and we get to play with a lot of flies and a lot of techniques, and and with our YouTube stuff and and um, podcasts and that kind of thing, we get to share a lot of what we're learning along the way. That's right. Yeah, that, no, that's awesome. You dug into a bunch of things there. I'd love to talk about you know the podcast. I I forgot about. Yeah, you guys have that that going as well. What's the you know the Cabells is funny because I was just in Sportsman's Warehouse you know last uh, last night getting some uh, deer hunt you know some bullets for deer hunting and it was interesting because I asked one of the guys a question about grain weight and stuff and and he had no idea. He was obviously not knowledgeable and he passed me on to another guy who was pretty helpful. <laughs> But yeah, cool. Cabela seems like, you know, a big, obviously they're a big company. Um, you're in there. What, I mean, what's the difference between working there versus at like a fly fish food or, or the other fly shops? Um, well, it's, it's corporate, you know, where most of the, all the other fly shops I'd worked in were more locally owned mom pop type shops. Uh, Cabela's being, you know, what it is, it's a big corporation. So that has its pluses and minuses, but, uh, uh, I've been trying to think of, of drastic differences. I in Cabela's, I really just worked in fly fishing and fishing, and uh, later I was there for about almost twelve years. So uh, later, well, you know, after I'd been there a while, I ended up being in management a little bit, where I was over uh, fly fishing and marine as well. And uh, so you get to work with you know a lot of fun people. You get to be exposed to lots of stuff that you maybe aren't even that interested in in a big store like that. It was cool from a merchandising standpoint, you know, for my retail side of things, just to, yeah. to learn, you know, I learned, I, I knew a lot about fishing before working there, but I didn't know as much as, uh, I guess I had no idea how much goes into merchandising and, and marketing and all that kind of stuff. Cause everywhere else I'd worked was just, we, we drew business based on our expertise and our selection for local fisheries. And, and that's what really brought people in, um, Cabela's does uh, uh, you know a great job of of course sending out catalogs and yeah. now online the, and all that the, kind of stuff. The world's foremost outfitter, right? Is that that's, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. what they say? Uh -huh. Yeah, 
they're 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 huge. I mean, is, and in Utah, that's a pretty major hunting uh, state, right? It is a big yeah. hunting state. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, well. Th- this time of year, right now, it's uh, getting ready for. I'm getting ready for deer hunting. I, I'm not a huge hunter, but I, I definitely get out for deer hunting and get that in every year. But yeah, no, I, I wanted to um, dig a little more into just the background as we, you know, you think about the transition to Cabela's over to fly fish food. What was the transition like? Um, you know, into Team USA. How, how did that all occur? Uh, Team USA was interesting because I didn't know it existed, just like uh, probably half of your listeners or <laughs> one right. more w- w- when they hear this podcast will go, what the heck is Team USA? Yeah. Uh, it's not well advertised and, and it's not on TV, so and, nobody and why, knows why, about it. Seems and why is, that, why is that? Because it was funny because I, I've had a few of the, the Team USA is really interesting to me because I didn't know much about it either, but it's it's pretty awesome to think about it. and. And, you know, it's obviously USA. Why, is, why isn't there more of a, a push for advertising or to get the word out there? Or, or is there is just one of those things, it's just a struggle? No, I don't, I don't think there's any push to get it out there. I, I, I don't know. I, you know. The cynical side of me would say that uh, it doesn't get a lot of press because uh, I, I think there's a couple reasons. One, fly fishing and competition are not necessarily known as synonymous things. It's uh, – you know, most people fish to get away from others and, right. and to re- relax. And and uh, really, I mean, I think you find all the competitors do too, except for you know a few times a year when they compete. But uh, so I think that's one reason. I think the the industry as a whole doesn't really know what to do with the competition. And then the fly fishing world, as you know, is really small. Um, yeah. Our our biggest companies are, uh, you know, maybe not in trouble of going out of business, but they're. We don't have any, you know, billion-dollar companies no. in fly fishing, so there's not a lot of advertising dollars uh, to put towards things, and so it's it's a tough it's a tough you know niche yep. to 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 survive in. And then I think the other issue is the competitions are really hard to film. Um, hmm. You know, if you went to a world championship, you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 anglers or so. So at the beginning of the competition, you'd either have to have 120 film crews. Or you would have to get out your crystal ball and decide which two or three anglers are going to succeed enough to, that it, it would make an interesting show right. to follow just two or three guys. Because when you bounce around to a whole bunch of people, you don't really get a feel for how the competition actually works. So it's it's a really challenging, you know, logistically, it's a challenging thing to to capture, I think, and and show people. Um, so it it really hasn't, and it doesn't need to. It's not. No. It's not meant. There's no winnings. There's no money involved. It's not really meant to be a uh, uh, advertising marketing yeah. type of similar to program. The, uh, similar to like the skiing or mm-hmm. any of the USA Team USA. The, well, the Olympics obviously is the. It's there's no real comparison to that, right? Correct. Yeah the the fly fishing. You know the World Championship fly fishing. In the rules, in fact, you're, there can't be any winning. So. It's it's interesting when you get on social media, you get on Facebook and see people that are talking poorly of competition fly fishing, and they really most of them that are doing so have no experience with it, don't really have any no. understanding about how it works, and it's it's interesting to see how afraid we are of things that we don't know, that, and rather than getting yeah. informed, we just bash them. <laughs> that, that's exactly, and I've had um, that's why it's interesting. To me. I've had one guest on here that really uh, kind of bashed it. And ever mm-hmm. since that episode, I've been really trying to dig in at opportunities when I interview, you know, you or Devin and people that have a connection to it. 
um, you know, Jeff Courier, just to dig mm-hmm. into the background because I wasn't familiar with it. But the cool thing is, is the more that I interview people like yourself and, and learn about it, the more I realize that it's pretty, it's pretty cool. There's no, there's no, re- you know, there's no bashing doesn't make sense at all because it's just, it's a cool thing what you guys have going, you know? Yeah. And, and admittedly, it's not for everybody, right? I, I totally get, I mean, I, lots of people come to me and say, why do you want to, why would you want to compete in that? I don't, you know, I can't relate to that. And I get that. I, yeah. uh, sometimes I wonder when I'm out there, why I'm doing it. You're <laughs> not having a good session. You're going, what, what am I doing to myself? You know, but, but the, uh, long term for me, the competition thing is really fun because it's made me grow as an angler. It's made me realize, uh, opportunities in my fishing, you know, where, ways and, and techniques that I can improve. Um, and that, that trickles down to all of my fishing, you know, the, the last 15 years or so have changed me as an angler and that will, for the rest of my life, that will affect me in a positive way as far as my efficiency on any lake or stream and just my ability to catch fish going forward is just that much better. And that's, that's really fun. And then you have the camaraderie part of it. You have teammates, you have, uh, you make friendships, uh, you know, from people in other countries and, and uh, you get a fish with some of them, get in invitations to come stay at their homes and fish their local waters. And it's just a fun thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. I know it's frowned upon, you know, largely, but it's usually frowned upon by those who don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and you mentioned um, 120 film crews uh, <laughs> having to get that. I mean, and you have uh, been on some film. Uh, I'm thinking back. I can't remember the name of the competition, but isn't there a, wasn't there a, a show or a, a kind of a national competition we had here that you were involved with? Uh, we've had lots of national competitions here. Yeah. Uh, so I guess to answer your initial question, you asked how I really got started in oh, yeah. fly fishing competition. I kind of skipped all that. Yep. I go off on tangents. No, me to, too. Excuse me, Dave. <laughs> me too. But, uh, yeah, so I got involved with team USA by just a, a guy on team USA called me. So I had done the ESPN fly fishing, uh, competition. They call it the great outdoor games. And, and is that, remember out those? There? yeah, I kind of do. And is that out there anywhere on YouTube or anywhere that people can, take a look at it not that i know of. okay is it, uh, it was kind of pre you know oh yeah you know, pre-youtube the internet was a thing but it wasn't uh, as big of a thing because because i'm pretty old and uh <laughs> and uh so no it's i don't know that and, it's out there anywhere. and i've heard it espn was, yeah i think espn isn't uh, that forthcoming as far as you know putting a lot some of that stuff out old there. stuff up yeah. yeah i don't i mean i don't know why they it, that would probably get like 10 views, not really, but you know what I mean? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. not worth their time probably to yeah. put it up, but, but it was an interesting competition. And in it, uh, I went against a couple of people who had participated in, uh, team USA events and, the uh, the two years that I did the great outdoor games, I won it both times. Huh. And, uh, but you know, just by dumb luck probably, but, but as it turned out, I won. And, uh, so then team USA was going through a transition stage right about that same time. It had been, Basically, the guy who has the rights to the team, uh, basically the first person that figured out that, that that was a possibility and submitted the paperwork and paid the fees to uh, become an entity with the international organization, he, uh, he basically took his cronies, um, you know, I don't know all of them, some of them, maybe his dentist, his doctor, his attorney, uh, some fishing right. friends, I, I, you know, I don't really know all of them, I'm making some of that up, sure. but, but, he, but he basically, he took people that fly fish, but maybe... Um, you know, fly fish 10, 15, 20 times a year, maybe not the best anglers you could find to yeah. represent our country. Like a free trip, free, free trip Correct. to the world. I, and I think actually it wasn't even free. I think they all had to pay their own way. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is probably why he took some people that were, 
you know, some of the, the job positions that I mentioned that could yeah, afford to go. Gotcha. So, so they didn't, uh, they didn't traditionally do very well. You know, they, they were not necessarily bottom of the, of the list, but near the bottom of the list because they just didn't have the skill set needed to really succeed in competition. So the team at that time was kind of, uh, run by Jack Dennis and Jack, kind of saw what needed to change, I believe, and with some help from some other people, really got the team headed the right direction as far as creating a regional system and a point system and a nationals out of where we could, over the course of several competitions, kind of, you know, separate the cream of the of the best angler, the cream of the crop, the best anglers we have, um, at least the best anglers that are willing to participate in competitions, let's say that, because there are lots of great anglers that don't compete for sure. Uh, but so that's how I got involved is they called me and said, Hey, we're trying to change team USA to where, uh, it used to be kind of good old boys network. Now we're wanting to make it a little more legitimate. And, uh, we're starting by just trying to get the ball rolling by inviting people that have had success in some of these other, you know, one-off competitions where that, whether that's ESPN or whatever. And they said, you seem like the kind of person that would be interested and so I learned a little bit more about it, and uh, they happened to have a practice on the Green River in, in Utah here, which isn't too far from my home. So I, I went out and tried to figure out what Team USA was all about and uh, quickly figured out that I had a lot of learning to do and then kind of just have been involved with the team ever since. Nice. And yeah, Jack Dennis, obviously his name has come up a number of times. He's uh, He's been around a while out there. Is, is he somebody that uh, you knew or you connected with uh, as you're uh, not previous to that, but yeah. uh, once I got involved with Team USA, yes, definitely. Yeah, Jack is. Uh, he was the, the he called him. I think the title he had was coach of the of the team okay. for the first first few years I was involved. Gotcha. Um, he's he actually lives here in the Salt Lake area. Oh, okay. Now, nowadays, so I see him fairly often, and um, he's a he's a great guy, and he's oh, just cool. one of those legends of the sport. You know, he's been a, been around for a long time, had a lot of influence he, with his know, flight time books and videos, and he's he, a fun guy. Exactly. Now I'm starting to connect the dots. That's part of my goal here on this podcast. You know, just as I talk to people, but yeah, because Jeff Courier, Courier mm-hmm. worked for Jack Dennis for a number of years, and then right, it's funny when Jeff told the story. I'll put a link to the podcast or in the show notes for that one. Um, it was great, but uh, Jeff mentioned that he had to quit working for Jack Dennis because I think it was during the uh, maybe the crash, uh, the stock market crash time, and and uh, mm. I, think, I think Jack was trying to take away some of his vacation days, and he was like, "There's no way I'm going to fish less, so I, I'll, I'll quit." Oh no! <laughs> yeah, so he's like, "I'll quit," and then uh, the cool thing was he told the whole story about how when he quit, all the people came out, and basically he had even more work, so it worked out. But yeah, yeah, no, Jack Dennis, I definitely want to. Um, that's a guy I would love to talk to as well. But, um, yeah, well, we've got a bunch of things here, you know, I'm going into a fly tying season and I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I want to dig into some of that because I know, I don't know how many of your patterns you have that are your own, you know, patterns you've developed. I want to dig into some of those, but maybe before we can get to, we can just stay on this team USA, um, piece for a little bit. And can you just describe, uh, think of if you can, maybe your, your greatest day, you know, on the water, you know, or, or your most memorable day and just describe for us what, what that all was like. Hmm. My greatest day on the water. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I start don't... there. Do you have one? I mean, I know you've won, you've won uh, some medals, right? Or... Uh, yeah, I've won in, in world championships. We've uh, medaled twice as a team, once in, in Bosnia, silver medal, and once in Vail, Colorado as bronze medalist. And then individually, I also was the bronze medalist in, uh, at the world championships in Vail. 
Yeah. That was uh, like 2016, I believe that was. Okay. And is there, a, um, out of one of those things, is there a time, I'm just trying to paint that picture of, you know, somebody that doesn't know about Team USA, <laughs> take them to the water and talk about how you were able to do that. Because it seems like that's, if you got 120 people, that that would be, you know, uh, you know, what is that like? Is that something you can kind of describe a little bit? I could sure try. It's a, uh, it's really hard actually to, to do well. Yeah. I mean, you. It's a fishing, it's a fishing competition, so it's never a hundred percent fair, right? They make it as fair as possible, but but because there are live animals, there's live fish involved. Not all the beats are the same, right? They don't have the same quality of water. They don't have the same number of fish to be caught. Um, it's basically run. In that case, it was uh, one lake and four river sessions, and uh, each session is three hours long, and it's over the course. The competition's over the course of three days. So over three days, you fish um, each of the venues. In this case, we fished the Eagle River twice. We fished the Colorado River, the Blue River, and a lake called Sylvan Lake, all kind of near the, the Vale area, if you will, of, of Colorado. Uh, so you fish each of those places for three hours, and you, you are in a group with one angler from every country that's participating. So usually there are... You know, there's always five groups, and usually there are probably in the neighborhood of around 30 people per group, roughly. Um, some, you know, sometimes it depends on how many teams participate, but but that would be a pretty good round number to say that there there are. So you have 30 different countries, 30 different anglers, and everybody has their own beat on the river, and uh, you have your own controller who is just a judge making sure you follow the rules. So <clears throat> I get to my first session. I drew uh, a session on the eagle. And did I, I did well? I don't remember exactly how I placed, but out of those, let's say roughly thirty people, I think I was fifth place, maybe fourth or fifth place, somewhere in there. Uh, I think I had about nine fish. And you don't know going into it that first session. You really don't know how any of the beats fish after the first session, uh, especially after the first day. You can go back through the scores and figure out okay. You know, beat one is producing 20 fish a session, and beat six is producing two fish per session. Yeah. Right? That's a you don't want to beat you don't want to get those poorer beats. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have any control over it. It's a random draw, mm -hmm. and you just get what you get. So, long story short, you're trying to catch as many fish as possible in each three hour session. Gotcha. If you get so that beat, if you get that two beat or the the one that's obviously performing poorly, do you go mm -hmm. into it differently that day than you would the one where people are getting a lot of fish? Um, yeah, if you know that going into it, you would fish it probably a little bit differently in that you know you're not looking for numbers of fish. You're trying to salvage just a, a few of them. Um, the so size. rather are you, than – Are you going for size? Is it one of those things where I know there's some you know numbers of fish but also size, right? If you get a, a monster fish, that's going to help you more? Yeah, bigger fish are worth more points than small fish. Um, so, but you're, but you're, and yet they have to be eight inches to count anyway. Uh, but you're also limited. You don't, you know, your beats only, uh, most of the beats in Colorado were somewhere around a hundred yards long. So you have a hundred yards to work with for three hours. So you don't really have the luxury of just going, you know what, I'm just right. going to go chase the big fish, right? You, oh, yeah. or I'm just going to go chase small fish. You're basically you in such a small area. Yeah. You got to catch everything you can. Oh, wow. So you're you're in this beat and and you would approach it differently. I would anyway. I would fish if I knew there were very very few fish to be caught. I would be much more uh, stealthy. Uh, oh, I yeah. would be much more deliberate about you know staying really low and making sure I'm getting the absolute best presentation and the best water on my first you know first or second try at each spot. Um, 
And where by, if you knew there were just tons of fish, you would probably fish a little, I would call it power fishing. You'd oh, fish yeah. a little bit quicker, covering water faster, looking for aggressive fish, um, at least your first time through your beat. And then if, you know, if, if you got a quarter of the way through and you're not anywhere near the numbers you should be, then, then you might slow down and adapt, but yeah, yeah. You, you would change it a little bit. Uh, but, on that note but, with the, um, on the, the stealth mode, I, I had this mm-hmm. uh, question from, um, I can't remember if it was Shannon, but somebody out there had a question about the, uh, uh, bright colors, a red jacket. Is that something, you know, you occasionally see that a fisherman out there wearing a raid jacket that's bright red. Uh, yeah. how, how bad is that of an idea when you're out there for fishing just in general? I think it's, I think it's terrible. Okay. Uh, I hate it when my, when I'm guiding and my clients show up with like a, a blue hat, a bright orange hat, a bright red hat. I, I you know, I always cringe. You so, can't so say fish, anything. So, but so fish could definitely see that be versus your normal, just camouflage color, darker color. I think so. I mean, I think they're going to see you probably when they're, when you're really close, regardless of whether you're wearing camouflage or, you know, an orange yeah. hat, but I, I like to stack the deck in my favor. I figure, you know, wearing hunter orange clothing is probably not in your no. best interest, but, no. okay. but, uh, that said, you could, I'm sure you can catch fish in hunter orange too. You know? that's right, that's right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so cool. So I see where are we at? So you're, um, yeah, I guess we're, we're back on the river. Sure. You're trying to just catch as many as you can and you get some of those beats that are good and some of them that aren't so good. In my case, I had, uh, that first beat ended up being a decent beat. Um, my, my rougher beats, the blue river, I drew a beat that had produced, I think, I think I fished it fourth and I think it had produced four total fish or something like that three total fish for the the first three anglers that fished it and i was in i can't remember if i was in first second or third place but going into the fourth session i was up there in the in the scoring to where i had a chance at meddling and then i got word that i got this beat and realized that uh i had my work cut out for me because it did not produce fish very well and i i fished it really hard fished it as well as i could i think i ended up with five or six fish which was more than the previous three guys combined but (laughs) uh that was just a blessing to me because i didn't still didn't score terribly well in that session but i scored well enough that it kept me in the metal hunt and then my last session was on the eagle river and i really struggled for like the first hour and a half i think i only had a couple of fish and then the sun went behind the hill and the fish got really active and i put together a uh, some flies and a technique, you know, program that they really liked. And then all of a sudden I went from like two or three fish. I think I ended that one with 14 fish in the nice. last hour or so running fish back and forth. So you just kind of have to keep your head in the game and, and, uh, yep. you know, doing that ended up with, for me getting a medal. Uh, so that, that's our, our medal history in the world championships. Uh, so there's three anglers that have, that have medaled from the U S individually, uh, starting with actually Jeff Courier, who you've mentioned, mm-hmm. Um, in Spain, he earned a bronze medal, Devin Olson in Bosnia earned a bronze medal. And then myself in Colorado earned a bronze medal. Uh, so we haven't been able to get over that bronze hump individually, but, yep. but only three of us have done it. And we've had lots of, lots of opportunities. Um, that's right. It's not- d- domestically, I've done a little better. I'm, I've won our national championships three times and was a silver medalist once as well. Uh, so I've done pretty well. In, in our own competitions, but the world's uh, a whole different stage and a whole different, you know, talent pool, if you will. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So you basically you're, you know, that, that is an uh, easy question, the greatest day, but I mean, you talk about the day you meddled. I mean, it's pretty, it's, I mean, you, you just, you're putting in your time. I mean, it sounds like it's not like you're out there and people are the, you know, 
you're on fire and catching hundreds of fish, you're just kind of putting your time in and you're, and you're fishing. I mean, is there anything different you're doing out there that makes a difference between the bronze day versus the day where you're not even close? No, not really. Not the way you're fishing. Uh, you know, sometimes things come together in your draw, your, your beats, who you, who you fish behind is an interesting thing in the competitions oh, too, yeah. because if you fish behind uh, somebody from a country that's not very good, um, yep. you know, they catch two fish and there are, you know, 20 or 30 of them to be had, then that's a real blessing. If you fish behind somebody that just obliterated a beat right before you, that's, yeah. that's not good. Um, <laughs> who's the best country? Who's the right now? Uh, who's the lead? If you had to say the, the one that maybe the, who's taken the most medals or. Uh, well, long term, France and the Czech Republic have kind of shown that they've probably been the two best teams over the years. Most recently, I would say the Spaniards have been the oh, best. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you could really argue that they've won. I can't remember how many three out of the last four or something like that. As no a kidding. team, they've, so, they've really been dominant. So what are they? I mean, is this kind of like a, um, you know, like, uh, like Lance Armstrong's thing, they're jacking up on, uh, on steroids and they're kicking butter. <laughs> like, how are they doing this? Uh, I don't think so. They, there's uh, no doping allowed. So I think they're, <laughs> is, do you I guys talk about that? Is there, is doping, is that actually in the, in the, bylaws? uh, not really. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's not a thing in flight. It, it is in the rules, but I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know that anybody, it's not going to be an advantage. It's not, you know, it is, it can be a little bit of an athletic event as far yeah. as running fish back and forth to That's be measured, right, but it's not, yeah. <laughs> But it's not to the extreme that uh, doping is going to be a real issue. So. No. Uh, but it, funny enough, it is actually in the rules that they, they, they do test. They randomly test the two or three anglers there every year um, for drugs and for, you know, performance enhancing there you go. <laughs> drugs, I suppose. Yeah. I don't think that it's a real worry, but, but it is something they look at. Um, I think that the difference for them is they, they have challenging fishing at home um, that makes them – uh, yeah. you know, they have to be quite good to consistently catch fish, but more important than that, I think is that they are a team. They are, they work, they're, they're like brothers as, as they would say, my friend Pablo actually visited this year from Spain and, uh, stayed at my house for a, a week or two. And, and, uh, he really hit that home. I, cause I asked him all those questions. Trust yeah. me. Uh, yeah. what, you know, what makes you guys <laughs> so good if you're fit when you're fishing with him, you realize he's a, he's a highly, highly skilled angler, but you also realize that, um, you know, he, he, there are, there are lots of people in the world championships that are highly skilled anglers, let's say. And the Spaniards have been able to really stand out last few years. And he hit, he just keeps hitting that one home. You just have to say, yeah, it is the way he said, we are brothers. Um, we work together. We share everything. We, we love each other. We, you know, we're doing, we're, we're working as a team for the greater good of the team and not for the individual. Yep. And, uh, and we've known that that's not news to us. We, no. we work on that same premise, but, but maybe, uh, you know, obviously based on our results, at least we haven't been able to come together as much as they have. Um, I mean, yeah. when they are up on the metal stand, they're shedding tears and there's hugs and, <laughs> wow. and it's, it, it's a real deal. They, they just love each other and they love, uh, they love, you know, working hard to have that team result. That's cool. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it, it really, and that goes, that's sports. I mean, right. Think of, the, think of who won the Super Bowl last year, right? I'll bet you that the same story was there. They were probably the best team. They were the best yep. uh, group of family, you know, like that's that same story. So it's no different. Yeah, any team sport, that's definitely going to be the case, right? If you're all individuals, if you're all Antonio Browns, then uh, you're gonna you're gonna have problems, right? If you're 
if you're all inclusive and you're That's all right. working together. Now, then now, now is Antonio, I've been out of the sports uh, scene for a little while, uh, you know, but uh, now that is that football? That's football. Yeah. All right. Football. He's, he's, he's the guy that's just had uh, social media wreck and ke- oh. keeps getting kicked off every team. And that's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's also incredibly <laughs> talented, right? Every, nobody sure. really argues that he's not, he's, he's arguably the no. best or certainly one of the best receivers in the league, but he just can't get his mind that- wrapped around what, what work actually is. <laughs> you know what that is too, is the, um, you know, like they say, whatever, you know, you know, 80% mental. I mean, that that's re- a reality. I, I've known people that were like that, that were amazing. And you just see that they don't have the mental game. And that's why it's, you know, the Michael Jordans and the people of the world that go the next, they have, they have it all. I mean, it, I guess team USA kind of is a little bit of a mental game as well. Right. Oh, big time. Yeah. I would argue that that's the, the major, you know, fly fishing competition wise. That's the major thing. Most of the people that are at our nationals or at the world championships are very skilled anglers. I, to me, what separates the the best from the next tier down is is that mental toughness. Being able to take a take a tough beat and work through it and do as best you can and be confident that you did fish it as well as you could and you just got to put that one behind you and, and move to the next one and give it all you've got again. The those that are a little bit less mentally strong, they let that that bad beat or they let you know some little outside uh, distraction get in their head and, uh, and it just ruins them. They, they just can't focus the same. Um, that definitely is a, that's a game changer. That's it. Well, I want to, I'm, I'm not going to dig into basketball yet, but I know you have a little bit of, uh, uh, you've talked about basketball before and I love basketball as well, but let's say that if we have time at the end of this for a rapid fire round, but, uh, let's dig in real quick to, uh, some of, you know, when you think of fly fish or fly tying, fly fishing, Euro nymphing, I mean, obviously that's a big, you know, a big topic out there. People are really interested in nowadays. And I mean, it's been around for a while. That's, that's the interesting thing. I was just recently interviewing a guest and he noted that I think 15 years ago he started getting into Euro nymph and it's taken, it seems like that long before now it's, it's kind of getting mainstream. Can you talk about, mm-hmm. uh, the Euro nymph patterns that you've uh, created and, and I don't know if we have to talk about Euro nymphing exactly, but just kind of what you do with competition fishing and then, and then what makes as far as fly design, a good, um, kind of nymph pattern or Euro nymph pattern. Uh, that's a good question. Euro nymphs. So, I mean, if, if we're defining Euro nymphs, I would say Euro nymphs are, you know, generally speaking, tungsten beaded, um, you know, they're weighted flies that are designed to get down without the weight, the, you know, added weight without split shot or sinkers added to the leader to nymph. Um, so Euronymphs, you know, I have mine through Umqua, uh, so any shop that carries Umqua flies can order them if they don't already. Uh, I would encourage you to encourage your local shop to get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, you know, maybe if they buy a few dozen, I might be able to buy like 50 cents worth of gas for my car. That'd be pretty nice. <laughs> uh, <Yep. laughs> I joke, nobody's getting rich off flies. But, no. but uh, yeah, so Euronymphs, uh, you know, most of mine are designed to be pretty simple to tie because I like to be able to build flies quickly. I'm I'm not really a proponent of really elaborate fly patterns. I think they look really cool, but I'm I love really simple designs that that just catch fish. Um, mm-hmm. So I know uh, leading up to it, I asked you some you know if what I could prepare for the yeah. for the podcast, and you kind of gave me the how you know maybe some tips for for tying your own nymphs so maybe maybe we, this is a good time to this, jump into that would one be great yeah so so number one and really no particular order on these but number one i would say you know use jig hooks and slotted beads mm. uh 
I'm a big proponent of the jig hooks. They ride hook up so you don't snag the bottom as much. They tend to hook fish in the upper portion of the mouth or the corner of the mouth rather than the bottom jaw. So trout in particular have a lot more uh, meat, a lot more flesh, if you will, on their top of their mouth rather than the bottom jaw tends to be more bony with just a flap of skin to, to grab with the hook. So when you hook fish, this is one of those competition tricks, when you hook fish in the on the bottom jaw, they're more prone to to tearing out when you're applying pressure during the fight versus if you hook a fish right you know if you think about the fish you've unhooked when you get a fish that's right in the top center of the mouth you know right on the lip if you will yeah that hook's usually buried in there and they're not going anywhere you have directional control over the fish when you're fighting them and, and the jig hooks allow that they also allow um, you to use a wide variety of, of sizes uh, bead-wise. So jig hooks you could put, you know, on a 16 jig hook, I, I use everything from like two and a half millimeter beads through, you know, three, three and a half and four millimeter beads all on a 16 hook. So I can have the same fly pattern that's in various weights because that that 60 degree jig um, allows the bead to sit in such a way that it doesn't eat up too much of your hook gap when you go oversized on the beads. Mm-hmm. Um, so jig hooks and slotted beads are a big deal on that note. Uh, not all beads are created equal. So if we're look, you know, just as a tip, uh, a a lot, you know, a lot of us are, are price conscious and that's a good thing to be right. But if you're finding tungsten beads that are significantly less expensive than everybody else's tungsten beads, you should probably be a little bit leery of that. They're Hmm. probably not a high percentage tungsten. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're probably partially tungsten, but they won't be as heavy as really high quality beads. Mm -hmm. And then the lower quality tungsten beads have really large slots, um, you know, for a slotted bead anyway, or they could, even if it's a counter drilled bead, they could have a really large hole, which then takes out a lot of the tungsten that's, that's adding your weight. So make sure you're getting beads that have, you know, maximum weight. What's a good, Uh, um, what's a good company you like to use? My favorites have been the Hannock brand beads, both hooks and beads. I really like the Hannock 400 hooks. Uh, they're, they're jig hooked, just their classic jig. And the, their Hannock slotted beads tend to be very consistent, very small slots. They're very dense. Uh, and they're really not that expensive uh, relative to, you know, they're a little less expensive than many other uh, slotted oh, bead cool. options out there. Cool. Um, what else? I, I kind of mentioned this already. There's... There's, it's really important, I think, to have the same patterns tied in various weights. When I get people in the shop, I had a guy in the shop yesterday saying, I want to get into Euronymphing, you know, what, what five flies should I pick? And you're mm-hmm. like, five flies, man, that's, <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> it's, and yeah, I mean, if it was dry flies, that's pretty easy. Cause you, you only need, they all float, right? You yeah. only need, you just get five different patterns, maybe grab a few of each of them and, and we can make that work when you're nymphing and you're using the, the flies as your weight. You need the five flies is okay, I suppose, but you need to have each fly in various weights to allow you to adapt to each situation. You know, moving from the tail out of a pool to the the deepest part of the pool to the plunge part of the pool where it's faster water. Um, you know, the slower water requires less weight, and the faster or deeper water uh, requires more weight. So you need to be able to adjust. So having all of those patterns tied in just various weights is really key, I think, to Euro Nymphs. Um, one of the things I struggled with when I was first tying Euro Nymphs is keeping them slim. I always wanted to wrap lead wire underneath them, oh, yeah. and I still I still do on some. But by the time you wrap, you know, a thread base, a lead wire underbody, and then if if you're 
not really good at dubbing, people tend to over overdub most of their flies, yeah. I think. So then you end up with a fly that's really heavy but not really dense because uh, it's so fat that it doesn't sink very well. So we have a, a saying in the fly fishing competition world that's, that's thin to win. You want to make the, the flies really slim and really dense. Well, what about tying uh, with a um, – I don't even know if they still have a lot of these, but those they're extra thin <clears throat> diameter hooks. They still work – Is that? I mean I know those are weaker hooks, but – yeah, yeah. That well, that would certainly cut through the water more, I suppose. But it's, I think, in the hooks case, you're better off with a heavier wire hook to aid in sinking. Heavier, yeah. So long as, yeah, just it's it's dense enough. It's not as big of a deal what, as what like about a, a what about overdubbed a body. What about a tungsten hook? That'd be crazy. I don't know. I'm not, huh. I haven't seen any of those before. It'd be probably very expensive. And yeah. tungsten doesn't. It's not malleable. So it. Uh, I don't know if they could bend tungsten to where oh, right. uh, they could make the hook shape and the little eye yeah. without it breaking. It it doesn't uh, it doesn't bend very well. It breaks pretty easily. It's pretty brittle. Gotcha. Um, yeah, density though. It's important to remember that density is not the same as weight, right? The you could have something that's really heavy that's still not very dense. Um, so density is a big deal in in nymphs for Euro fishing, particularly. Uh, okay. What else? Do you think, keeping them slim? Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. So, so I think we're about. Uh, so this is good. I, I think it'd be cool if we could come out of this with a, you know, a top ten uh, tips, uh, fly tag tips for Euro nymphing. That, that'd be awesome. I'm not sure if we'll get there, but yeah. Do you have any others we want to add to this list? Uh, maybe using hot spots. I think is 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 you'll see that in you know if you just search get online and Google Euro nymphs, you're going to see a whole bunch of pink beads and orange beads and red tails and orange tails and chartreuse collars and pink collars and, you know, hot spot stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're so fed in the fly fishing world, match the hatch, match the hatch, match the hatch, which is good. But, uh, you know, sometimes just having a crazy attractor fly, I would, I would argue most of the time when you're nymphing and you're just searching, you know, how many, how many times out of 10 times that you fish, uh, at least for me, I would argue that nine of them, there's no major hatch going on. There's always a few bugs around, but there's not, you know, one one out of ten times yeah. there's a mega hatch that the fish are really dialed into one particular insect. Most of the rest of the time, they're eating whatever presents itself as food. So yep. having a crazy attractor fly that just gets their attention usually outfishes really imitative flies. So yeah. uh, on that note, my next one is just have some imitative flies, but don't overthink ma- matching the hatch. Uh, oftentimes, attractors are the best you know, producers, you don't have to, you don't have to have an exact imitation. We get asked a lot when I'm showing people in the shop, your own them. So they'll say, what should I fish? You know, the Provo river is just up the street from our shop. So what should I fish on the lower Provo? And I'll show them some crazy flies like my red dart, for instance, it has a red tail and a flashy body and a pink hot spot and <laughs> uh, red thread, you know, collar. It's kind of a strange looking fly called a circus show. It, it doesn't look like anything. And they'll, they'll look at it and they'll go, what's that imitating? And I look at them and go, I have no idea. Yep. I, I, I don't think it's imitating anything. There's nothing in the river that looks anything like this, but the fish do like it and they do eat it. Uh, why? I don't know. And I honestly, I guess I don't really care. I guess I'd like to maybe understand why, but uh, as long as they eat it, that's, that's what I need to know. Yeah. <laughs> So don't uh, don't get too wrapped up in matching the hatch, uh, mm-hmm. especially when you're euro fishing. Obviously, if you're fishing a dry fly hatch, that's a different situation. But uh, you know, nymphing, you gotta the the presentation trumps the fly pattern. You gotta get it to the proper depth. You gotta have it in the right water type. You gotta get it drifting the right speed. You gotta stay in contact with it. If you're doing all of those things, all of uh, we joke that all of the wrong flies will then outfish all of the right flies. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. 
Uh, and then maybe last, just play with colors, whether it's bead colors, um, hot, you know, just tags or hot spot colors. Uh, you'll find that, that different colors in different you know, rivers, different times of year, et cetera, et cetera, seem to outproduce others. Um, there's no real, I don't have any scientific evidence to tell you at this time of year you fish this or that, but just, you know, having a selection of colors will, uh, allow you to adapt and, and find the best flies for each day. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm glad you hit on the match the hats. That was a question I had just, the, you know, it sounds like, yeah, maybe we are pushing the match the hatch to, to a fault almost that, you know, you should be trying different things. So that's a, a definitely a good tip. Um, I did have a few questions. Um, well, I guess is the Pat's rubber leg, is that a variation, something you can talk about? Was that one of yours? Maybe you can just talk uh, the generally. Patch, Pat's maybe, rubber leg isn't, or isn't it's, mine. That's but not I, yours, I, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the patch rubber leg is uh, a pattern that I'm trying to remember. Pat, I think it's Pat Bennett's. Pat Bennett, uh, I, I'm not 100% certain that, but yeah. I think it's an Idaho fellow that came up with the patch rubber leg stone. So I do one I have on our YouTube channel of Fly Fish Food that is a patch rubber leg variation. Um, it just uses a tungsten bead head. We put it on a, a bent shank hook so that the hook actually inverts and rides hook up, even though it's not technically a jig hook. And then uh, we weight it. So for Euronymphing, you need that fly to be weighted. And so by adding the tungsten bead and the lead wire underbody, which a lot of path stones would already have the lead wire underbody, not many that I had seen had a tungsten bead. So just a variation on the original, certainly not not something I created. You know, the, the fly pattern itself is not mine, just a variation on somebody else's pattern. Okay. And then and then your pat. can you just talk about maybe your top uh, yeah, we'll get your top 5 uh, your signature <laughs> patterns that you would uh, you know if you did have to pick 5 of your own your own patterns uh, we'll go back to that. Uh, can you talk about a few of those? Nymphs or uh yes, let's just go I mean let's just go in general or either way whatever you whatever you feel is you know if you had to your do you call them your, do you call them your confidence patterns is that is that what you call them as well? Yeah. Yeah, we do call them confidence flies or confidence patterns. Uh, man, if I had to pick a few of them. So the Frenchie would certainly be oh, yeah. high on the list, if not top atop the list. Uh, I have a new fly that's coming out from Umqua this fall called a Thread Frenchie that we've had on our YouTube channel at Fly Fish Food for a while. So if you haven't seen that one, you could actually check out how to tie your own. But they'll be available for those that don't tie flies uh, coming in the, in the okay. coming months here. Uh, thread Frenchie is one I fish an awful, awful lot. Uh, the red dart would be one I fish a lot. Um, the tungsten surveyor, the rainbow warrior, uh, the iron Lotus. Those are all kind of just go to nymphs for me. Dry fly wise. I fish, uh, in the summertime, I fish a corn fed caddis and a bionic ant probably more (laughs) than any other, any other patterns. And and the corn fed Uh, caddis, could you, uh, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes, but describe (laughs) that quickly what that looks like. Yeah, it's a CDC caddis pattern, um, uh-huh. you know, kind of in a nutshell. I, f- I think most CDC patterns are designed to be really sparse, and this one is not. It's designed to be um, beefy. I, I think when I sent it to Umpqua, I think in my description to try and sell it to him, I said this is a, a linebacker at ballet class. You know, it's uh, uh, it's it's really a bulky fly that uh, CDC patterns, like I say, are, are, yeah. are traditionally emerger type stuff and sit really low um, for super selective fish and on and on. And this fly uses a lot of CDC. So it has a, a trailing shuck of Antron yarn. It has a super fine dubbed body. And then it has a whole bunch of CDC tied in with a little bit of poly yarn on the top. Mm-hmm. And then it has a CDC hackle. 
So rather than using chicken hackle, we use CDC in a thread loop, excuse me, and we wrap that around for the front hackle. And it it creates a really buggy looking fly that, uh, that, you know, like most CDC patterns floats really well until it gets saturated. (laughs) Yeah. And then you got to dry it out. But it just murders when fish are on caddis. Uh, it just kills them. It's 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 just such a great pattern for caddis eating fish. Uh, I, you know, the the old elk care caddis is a standard for sure in the industry. But I I can honestly say I just never fish them anymore. Uh, the corn fed for me floats just as well, if not better. It sits higher on the water, which I think is really important for caddis patterns. Seems like the lower they sit, the less the fish like them. Uh-huh. Uh, the corn fed just it just flat catches fish. It's a little yeah. bit more challenging to tie than most of my patterns because it's really not that hard, but it just has a, a couple extra tools involved and that sort of thing that are not as easy to work with as maybe a, you know, a, a, a rainbow warrior, for instance. But, uh, but that's a great pattern. I think if you, if you haven't tried it out, go, go give that one a whirl. Nice. Nice. I wanted to just touch on, I had a question or, um, uh, Glenn Zarboni in the in the group here. He was uh, he mentioned. I'm not sure if you do this, but uh, the leaders and the super glue method. Do you? Can you talk about your leader and, and is that something you're familiar with? I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I think he's referring to the super glue method to attach it to the fly line. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's something I've played with. I don't actually use the super glue method much myself. Uh, if I could get them to consistently hold, I would. But they just they fail more often than I would like. Um, it's probably just me. It's probably operator error, but, uh, I get some that hold really well and some that hold really well when I'm at home. And then the third fish in just break my whole leader Mm. system off. So I don't use it. I use a needle nail knot to attach my leader to my fly line. Um, I'm a big proponent of cutting off the loops that come with all the fly lines. Oh, that's right. Uh, You like cut them off, cut them off on the the loops and also on the, on your knots, you're cutting the, the, the tag end pretty tight on the knots as well. Definitely. Yeah. If you get a, like a blood knot when you're building a leader, if you get it cinched up all the way, there's no need, you know, if you've seeded the knot properly, there's no need for the tag end to stick out. That's what always freaks, that's what always freaks me out on that. And I I fish a lot for steelhead as well. So I'm always, it's probably not as critical, you know, there. So I always leave a nice fat tag end, but I, yeah, I'm always super worried that, man, if I don't leave a nice tag end, I'm going to, I'm going to break it off. And, And so you're saying, what is the tip there? Is it just, you pull as hard as you can, before you uh, cut cut it off tightly exactly yeah you just need the, the knot to be properly seated so it's not going to slide anymore so if you don't uh, you know and, and this is knots are something that uh, you know having worked in fly shops for 25 years most people if we're being really uh <laughs> really candid people are terrible at tying knots yeah. generally speaking right so people will tell me all the time they'll say i tried to build your euro leader but <laughs> The knots just hang up in the guides. Um, so yep. what do you do about that? And you go, well, you got to tie good knots. And like, well, I tie good knots. So I, I'll go to the trouble of sending them a picture of a good knot versus a bad knot. And they go, oh, yeah, mine looks just like the bad knots. Okay. Yep. Um, most people struggle so much at tying, at tying knots that uh, they just don't get them to seat properly. So they're not very smooth. And if that's the case, then you probably should have less knots in your rig. Uh, but if you do really smooth knots, really smooth connections – that's not a worry. And again, that's why I like to get rid of those welded loops on the end of all my fly lines. Or I use long leaders for almost every technique, you know, other than maybe streamer fishing, right? Uh, and even then, I tend to fish longer than most because I like to fish two, sometimes three streamers at a time. And uh, having a long leader necessitates taking your your fly line to leader connection in the guides 
if not on every cast, then certainly when you're at least landing fish and you just can't really tolerate having a clunky connection there. I'm amazed at how many times I'm guiding where people are fighting fish and I'll say, keep stripping, keep stripping, keep stripping. And they go, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bring the fly line in the guides. And yeah. why not? You know, there you go. why wouldn't you do that? You have to, to get the fish close enough to land it. Yep. And they, well, it'll hang up. No, it won't. You're using my rig and it's going to go right through like it doesn't exist. That, There's no knot there. That's a really good tip, uh, Lance. I'm, I'm glad you threw that out there because I think that is a struggle for a lot of people on that, that you, you're always worried. Yeah. Don't, it, especially God, when you're using a, uh, a super long rod and out here, you know, spade rod and stuff like that, you've, it's, mm-hmm. it makes it really tough. But if you could situate that where you're not worried about pulling your, your uh, leader up through the guide. So you think right. that would work just as effectively with the steelhead setup? Oh yeah, definitely. If you're tying like a needle nail knot or something that's, you know, really, really strong, but also very smooth. Um, it would definitely work. There you go. Uh, literally I cut off, I, I joke, but I, uh, with customers every day, but I cut, that's the first thing I do when I get a new fly line is cut the blasted loop off. I hate those things. There you go. <laughs> nice. Nice. Let's see. So, yeah. So where are we at here? Uh, I've got a, I've got a bunch of questions, uh, still I wanted to dig into. Do you, do you still have a little more time to, to yeah, keep definitely. here? Um, well, you know, I, we touched on a little bit on the, the fly uh, pattern stuff. Maybe we can circle back to that if we have a little time. But I did have a couple of funny, you know, questions for you. I wanted to check in with you. One of them was maybe just quickly the um, the story, the um, That's Lance Egan story. Yeah. Is that um, – could you could you tell that real quick? Because I, I, I heard that. I think I can't remember where I heard that, but I thought that was pretty funny. And you guys, Cheech and the, and the gang back there still, still talk about that quite a bit, right? Yeah, they think it's funny. I don't think it's that <laughs> funny, but – they they know that I don't love uh, I don't love the limelight if that makes sense I like to be kind of low key and just do my gig I guess but they like to make a point of it we were in the middle of the backcountry um, a long way from anything uh, and like we're at ten thousand feet so we had maybe an hour of uh, oh you know razor driving on some of the craziest oh, rockiest wow. roads you've ever seen and you're in the middle of nowhere <laughs> quite literally and we're all setting up on this lake to go fish and we've got people with that drove four-wheelers up we've got people with razors that drove up and we're all just about ready to get out on the lake and we hear the rumble of another motor and up comes two four-wheelers and they pull to the back of the parking lot um you know, dirt lot. Let's 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 not make this. Yeah. It's not paved. This sure. is in the middle of backcountry. So they pull up on the trail, and they're maybe 50, 60 yards from us. And they slow down, and both of the machines stop. And the guy in the front turns around the guy in the back, and and looks over at our group of of like eight or nine people, and goes, "Hey, that's Lance Egan right there." And then they they don't say anything to us. They just start driving on up the road. So they didn't they didn't stop. They didn't say hello. I don't I don't know. To this day, I don't know who it was. Really? Uh, and the guys thought that was really funny that uh, <laughs> that somebody recognized me in the middle of the backcountry, took the time to to say the, the say <laughs> my name, and then and then not come over and talk to us and just drive on. Exactly. So, so they didn't actually they didn't actually leave the fishing area. They were still fishing that day. The these other anglers. Yeah, yeah. Or was the guy that said that's Lansing? And was he like, oh, that's Lansing, and I'm definitely not going to fish this area because. No, I, it was. There's another lake up the road a little further. Oh, and gotcha. I think they just went to the other lake. Cause I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what their program sure, was. Sure, but sure. It was an interesting uh, thing to just <laughs> see them. So they, they just pulled up, said that's Lance Egan, and then they drove on. And so they've then you know Cheech and the boys have then started a 
a hashtag campaign and they like the oh, hashtag nice. that's that scene right there. There you go. So oh. now I get almost every day somebody's tagging me in something Perfect. where they think it's really funny. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Maybe you're not. I'll, I'll tag it as well. I'll keep that going and uh, throw that out there. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, um, no, I, I, the Fly Fish Food, you know, so Cheech and uh, Curtis, uh, it was funny. I asked Curtis when I had it on. I can't remember what it was, but it was basically something like, who's the brains and who's the, you know, uh, the uh, the comedy comic relief behind the fly fish mm-hmm. but but I didn't realize at the time that you're 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 like the third tier right it's three of you guys working over there third third will is a better third, better description better, better, third so, will. so how would you um you know so so the good the bad and the ugly if you had to put that into to you three who 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 would be who uh, I think I'm the good and the bad and Cheech is definitely the ugly, but so I don't know where that leaves Curtis, all but right. no, I'll, all joking aside. So Cheech and Curtis started fly fish food. Uh, they were, they were kind enough to let me, uh, you know, work with them and, uh, work in their shop and, and help them do some of their YouTube videos and that kind of stuff. Uh, they, they, you know, let's not make any mistake that people for some reason think that I'm one of the owners of fly fish food and I am not, they are the owners. Yeah. I just work for them. Uh, but they're awesome to work with, and they are really fun. And they're, uh, if you watch our YouTube stuff, uh, you'll know that we like to razz each other a bit. Nobody gets their feelings hurt too much. And uh, so we give each other a bunch of grief and have a little fun on the water and, and mm-hmm. at the tying bench and on and on. Yeah. Um, and, and you've taught them, I'm sure, a lot. What um, you know, Is there anything that you, you think of when you think they've taught you, either Curtis or Cheech, and just working there? Is it, it must be a, a new experience versus, I think you said you came from Cabela's, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely. Uh, it's definitely been a new experience. It's been really fun. Uh, I mean, things I've learned from them, they are really good at, at marketing, um, that, which is something I'm terrible at. So they they are really good at using social media to, to um, help people get aware of new flies and new techniques and that sort of stuff. And that's uh, not something that's a strength of mine. So I've definitely learned that from them. They are also both incredibly skilled fly tires. So we're always bouncing ideas off each other as far as, you know, new flies and new materials. And, uh, Curtis in particular is, is definitely the brains of the, of the bunch. He's a, we call him the, the nerd. He's yep. the computer nerd. He's also <laughs> the, you know, the entomology nerd. Oh, cool. he's, he's, uh, you know, both of Cheech and Curtis are, are great fishermen as well. Uh, but Curtis is definitely the standout guy as far as when we need something, you know, it done, he's an engineer by, uh, oh, you know, right. by, by schooling, but, but he's also worked for companies that he just does a lot of computer work. So he, he knows everything about, it seems to, a, a computer, uh, idiot such as myself, he knows everything about how to fix all kinds of problems on the computer, how to create programs to manage our inventory right. and manage orders and all that kind of stuff. Yep. So Curtis really makes the, the shop processes go and Cheech, uh, specializes more in harassing people. And, yep. uh, no, I, I'm kidding, <laughs> but, but he, he does, he does actually enjoy that. He's quite the internet troll. Uh, yeah. He likes to, he doesn't really go out and have his way to troll people, but if, if somebody says something silly, he'll kind of, he's not afraid to call him on it. Let's yep. say, uh, Cheech is also really savvy at, uh, at creating that social media presence. So he's got his fly tying with uncle Cheech, uh, Facebook group that has, I can't remember 20,000 people <laughs> or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty big fly tying group, uh, yeah. and somehow manages to keep most of them from, uh, beating each other up verbally on, right. on the interwebs, which is a full-time job in and of itself. So yep. 
he's great at that. Uh, like I say, they're both really fun to fish with. They're great to work with, and they've been kind enough to let me uh, kind of get become their third wheel, if you will, and uh, and work in the shop and and help them out wherever I can. Yeah, no, that's great. What do you think is um, we're going to jump into in a sec here into the uh, a little bit of the rapid fire thing, but um, you know we haven't talked about some of the the work you're you've done i mean i I think you've got at least a a video or two out there can you you tell us you know maybe just what the work you're most proud of that you've um you've created is that's out there yeah so uh instructionally the uh the videos that i've done with devin olson and gilbert roley uh modern nymphing and modern nymphing elevated uh there those are both specific to your own nymphing so to your listeners that are thinking about trying your own nymphing you know shameless self-promotion here Mm -hmm. but I think uh, you'll have a hard time finding a better resource for getting started in the Euro Nymphing game. Uh, you do want to get them in order. You want to get the Modern Nymphing first, and then okay. once you've digested everything in that one, then you want to get the elevated video. Uh, those are available as DVDs from lots of places. We sell yep. them at flyfishfoodstore.flyfishfood.com, and, but you can get them. Lots of local fly shops have them too. Or if you're a little more of the digitally savvy um, – which is becoming more and more common, you can get them as a digital download on Vimeo.com. So if you just go to Vimeo and search Modern Nymphing, they'll both come up. They're, oh, cool. they're uh, I think, $20 on Vimeo. Uh, they're quite long. They're very, uh, yep. th- they're very involved as far as the instructional aspect, but they're also, we really, we've, we felt like most instructional fly fishing videos are, and by most I mean all, <laughs> were really boring. Mm-hmm. Uh even if they had incredible information in them, it's really hard to just suffer through the entire video because they were so boring or they're just not entertaining. So we really, uh, Gilbert has a skill for taking a boring person like myself and, and making it tolerable. Mm. Yep. <laughs> so making it digestible. So you can, you can watch the video and you're watching us catch lots of fish and uh, catching fish uh, almost on command as as we you know explain these techniques and the techniques make it easy to do that most of the time once you really get a handle on how to use the euro system gotcha and and you also have that is a yeah that's probably one of the best resources you also have a um i'm not sure if it's like a class a hour or two class on youtube right and you did with fly fish food is that something that you'd recommend people check take a look at too yeah, definitely. There's a YouTube, uh, Euro nymphing class for sure. Our YouTube channel has all kinds of classes on still water, on Euro nymphing, you know, on tying flies, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, so cool. definitely encourage people to check that out. Just fly fish food on YouTube. Um, but that would definitely be the, that's the piece that I'm probably most proud of. Uh, you know, I earn my living by working in the shop. I earn my living from royalty flies and through those instructional videos and uh, so the little bits of income that we get from that lets us fish and uh, and learn more about it. And then in turn, we can share what we learn with, with everybody else, which has been mm-hmm. a really fun process. Nice. The, G- Gilbert and Dev and I are working on a third project right now that's probably about 75% done. Uh, it's not Euro nymphing specific. It's just all fly fishing. So we're fishing dries, dry dropper, oh, cool. nymphs, and streamers in it. Um, a little more situational, so it's not so limited to just nymphing. Mm-hmm. We learned really quickly that by having two nymphing DVDs, we we apparently made everybody Pigeon think hold. that 
all yeah all we know how to do is nymph so <laughs> that's right uh in competitions everybody seems to think that all you can do is nymph but we fish dries and streamers and dry dropper and all kinds of techniques quite often uh, you know you're always trying to employ the best technique to catch the most fish and so i would argue that we specialize in lots of things but we're most known for nymphing but hopefully our next video will help uh teach some people some new tricks with some of those you know regarding some of those other techniques and maybe get us out of that pigeonhole of as being known as only nymphers yeah when you fish dries out there in competition are -hmm. you also sometimes just throwing on a dry that looks nothing like the natural that's just a kind of a tractor or or are you really fishing stuff that's coming off uh it's obviously situational dependent but uh yeah a little bit of both i mean we fish just chubby chernobyl type stuff we fish attractor patterns um We'll also fish, you know, caddis or mayflies or whatever the hatch may be. Uh, dry fly wise, it so depends on where you are. If you went, if you went back to when we were in Bosnia, a lot of the fish we caught were in super shallow water and crystal clear conditions with, you know, very very long. Um, I, I, you know, when I say long, I mean really long. Most people think long leaders are ten or twelve 10, feet, and yeah. we're ta- yeah, we're talking like uh, 18, 18 foot dry fly leader. Uh, wow. type presentations with with you know six or seven x tippets uh and that's that's a a way to you know minimize your impact of the line and, and leader on the water by just having a super long leader but you know you're using dry flies in that situation were small uh how could i describe you know just small cdc parachute right. or yep. small just your typical small little small patterns 16s 18s yeah, versus if you contrast that to maybe Norway would be a good contrast. When we were in the World Championships in Norway, we were fishing giant Chernobyl ants and uh, fishing droppers behind them and then sometimes skating the Chernobyl oh, ants wow. to get brown, brown trout and giant grayling oh, to man. blow up on them. That's uh, cool. So, we're, you know, you're doing a little bit of it all, huh. uh, just adapting to each situation. Cool. Well, let's um, – so I, I always kind of start to wrap up here with the, the 222, the top two tips, top two um, uh, flies and, re- and resources. But you've already talked about some flies, so let's just – and you've talked about a bunch of tips as well. But maybe we could wrap up that tips thing. Do you have any other – maybe a couple more tips that are on the Euro nymphing, whether that's uh, – you know, we talked a little bit about fly tying and – uh, mm-hmm. you know, in design or, you know, I guess we could throw in some fishing stuff there as well. And, and, and just to kind of get this started, I did have a, another question from, uh, John uh, Wilkinson about fluorocarbon and maybe you can just kind of okay. ans- answer that first. Uh, what, what your take is on the fluorocarbon? Is that a, a must, a must use all the time or what, what is your take? No, on? I wouldn't say it's a must use. I do use fluorocarbon tippet. Um, I don't use fluorocarbon leader for river fishing much. I just use the tippet, you know, I use a tapered leader that, that, or sometimes non-tapered, that's nylon, and then uh, use just the floral tip. But in streamer situations or in still water, you know, subsurface still water situations, I tend to use full fluorocarbon leader and tip it all the way down. But uh, I do like fluoro. I don't think, obviously, we caught thousands and thousands of fish before fluorocarbon was yeah. a thing. So, it, you know, is it necessary to catch fish? No, it's not. But once again, though, I like stacking the deck in my favor. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the fish we're trying to catch fish that already have lots of advantages instinctually over us. So, uh, if I can, you know, tie, retie less by having more abrasion resistance in the tip, which fluorocarbon offers, I'm going to do that. If I can get a little more strength, uh, I'm going to do that. If I can get, you know, especially when I'm nymphing or fishing streamers, if I can get a little more density to, uh, 
you know, fluorocarbon is microscopically more dense than nylon. It's not like it's a sinking line. It's not pulling flies under, but, but it does cut through the meniscus, the surface mm-hmm. tension of the water a little bit easier. So getting deeper quicker is, is more possible with fluorocarbon tippet. Um, I actually use fluorocarbon for dry flies as well. Again, I don't use the whole liter as fluoro, but that kind of goes against the grain. I know lots of people advocate using only nylon for dry fly fishing, but hmm. for me in the spookiest of situations, you want you don't want your leader to float or your, your tippet to float. When it's floating, All it casts right. a much larger shadow, yep. uh, reflects a lot more light. So most really savvy dry fly fishers will tell you the first thing they've got to do with their nylon tippet is put Snake River mud or Fuller's Earth or something like that on it to get it to sink. Um, which I just figured, why not cut out the middleman and just and just put fluorocarbon tippet on there? Uh, I yep. fish fluoro for all my dry flies; it works great. Um, other than that, uh, nylon works great though too. I, I would add, I have kind of a, uh, I guess a pet peeve in that people call the two products fluorocarbon and monofilament, but fluorocarbon is monofilament. It, monofilament just means that it's single strand, so the two different products are fluorocarbon and nylon. If that makes sense. Uh, that's a pet peeve of mine. I correct people a lot on the internet, so he may be just joking about that. I'm not sure. Uh, but that's one pet peeve of mine that doesn't make any difference, but it's, you know, just to be correct, I suppose. You have two different materials, and both of them are monofilament. Mm -hmm. Uh, fluorocarbon obviously has, you know, like we mentioned, more abrasion resistance. It is clear. It's a tiny bit more dense. Uh, that said, nylon catches a lot of fish. I would add that fluorocarbon is not is like all things. Not all fluorocarbon is made equal. You can buy really crappy fluorocarbon, and you can buy a really good fluorocarbon. So I would argue if you're buying really inexpensive fluorocarbon, you're probably actually better off to buy high-end nylon because it will be less expensive still, and it will have better strength-to-diameter uh, ratios. You know, be stronger per diameter uh, versus if you're comparing really high-end fluorocarbon to really low-end fluorocarbon, the uh, the diameter to strength and the abrasion resistance and the knot strength will not be the same. Uh, you know, we, we see people that are trying to beat the system sometimes and say, well, I'm just going to go buy 200 yards of spinning line to use as my right. fluorocarbon tippet. And you can, and you'll catch fish doing that, but you have to also recognize that you're buying, you know, they say, well, I'm getting four pounds, so that's 5X. Well, no, not really. In most of those, if you get four pound, it's more like three or four X. Oh, right. So it's it's just not the same. Again, can you catch fish on it? You can, but you're giving up diameter, you're giving up sink rate, you're giving up, uh, you know, visibility, all those things that uh, that you're really paying for in a high-end fluorocarbon. There's a, there's, unfortunately, there is a reason that that the some materials cost more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. They do. They do. That makes sense. And then, um, and as far as the resources, um, you know, for, if we're going to stay on that Euro kind of uh, nymph, uh, you know, topic, is there any other things that maybe aren't your own that are out there that might be a good resource for somebody that, um, you know, if they want to learn more about this and I'm not sure, I obviously Devin, you work with him quite a bit. He's mm-hmm. got, you know, he's got, I'm sure his own stuff too, but anything else out there? If, are you, I mean, you guys have a, one of the best resources, but are there others? Oh, there definitely are. Yeah. Uh, so Devin's book, uh, and George Daniel's book, dynamic nymphing from George and tactical fly fishing from Devin are both great resources. Uh, I'd encourage anybody that's, you know, that's a student of the sport. You should probably own both of those. Uh, you're going to get a whole bunch of, of, 
out-of-the-box thinking and different rigs and uh, ways to approach the water that are that will probably change the way you fish. Uh, those would be a couple of great resources. There are certainly lots of other uh, Euronymphing resources out there, none that come to mind, uh, but that yeah. you know, there's lots of information out there now. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there was hardly anything, and now there's tons of it. So it's easy to get into now. When I started Euronymphing, there were no YouTube videos. Nobody knew anything about it. Uh, we had to kind of figure it out on our own. Nowadays, you can I tease my clients that I can show them in, you know, six or eight hours what took me like five years to figure out. <laughs> nice. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, let's, um, you know, let's just kind of wrap this thing up. I, you know, just had a couple of uh, random questions and some not so random here. But I guess, you know, are there any other, if you want to just throw out one more tip just to wrap that up on on uh, fly tying, I guess, you know, or is there anything we miss when you think of your nips? I mean, you, you've covered a lot of it, but uh, anything else you want to you know, cover here before we, we head out fly tying. No, not really. I guess if I had a tip, maybe, maybe hooks, I think hooks are, it's crazy to me that people will buy cheap hooks. Yeah. Uh, it's your connection to the fish. You know, you've spent time tying a fly. You're, you're, you're putting your time into something that you're, you know, if you buy a cheap hook, you're maybe saving two or three cents on every hook. Um, yep. And just what's doesn't the difference make sense. between um, a cheap hook and a uh, and a, a really good hook? Is it just I mean you've got the obviously one's going to be sharper. Anything else? And what is the difference? Yeah, the strength of the wire. Uh, you know, high carbon hooks tend to be stronger wire. They don't bend out as much. They'll have uh, points that are that are more durable and longer lasting. Obviously, a you don't see a lot of them now, but a ground point hook would be a low quality hook versus a chemically sharpened hook would be much better. Um, you know, most hooks that are actually available are quite high quality. They just, I'm just amazed at how often people will say, well, I can get, you know, 50 or a hundred of these for $10 and I have to buy this one for $8 and I only get 25 and you're going, yeah, but that's the, like you spent hundreds of dollars in gas right? and, and, and preparation time, tying the fly and materials and your own, uh, just, you just put That's so right. much effort into getting there and then to put all that on the line for two or three cents on a cheap hook just doesn't make any sense. No, that's <laughs> a great point. Uh, otherwise I think, you know, if we go out of, of tying, I guess just a couple of parting tips when you're talking Euronymphing in particular, mm -hmm. uh, I find more and more that most fly fishers are terrible casters and I'm, I'm being very candid and sure. I don't mean to offend anybody, but oh, yeah. I don't expect anybody to be a tournament. You know, nobody's going to be Steve Ray Jeff, right? <laughs> you don't, you don't have to be that good of a caster, but, but you do need to be, uh, efficient enough to get flies where, where they need to go. And I can tell you from years of guiding that most anglers are completely incapable and I'm, I'm being candid. I know that I'm being yeah. rude, but but they're completely incapable of casting where they need within 20 or 30 casts. It's amazing oh, yeah. how often I set somebody up on a spot and say, cast it right here. And they've got like a three or four foot window and they'll take eight casts and none of them land there. And then they'll yeah. go, should we move on? And you go, no, you <laughs> haven't even hit the spot yet. You know, yeah. you're beating the water to a pulp quite nicely, but, but casting, uh, yeah. you need to spend some time in the park casting while you're fishing. Doesn't cut it. You got to go practice casting. Uh, Euro nymphing is no exception. The Euro rig is really awkward to cast. And if you're not a good caster, that's, you're going to struggle with it. Um, otherwise just when you're nymphing, keeping the cider off the water, uh, fishing as far away as possible, but also as close as you, you know, can get without spooking the fish. Uh, those would be tips, but casting, casting, casting. I spend most of my guide days trying to get people to learn how to cast. 
Yeah, that, no, that was a great tip. So, okay, and um, yeah, I guess we'll head out of here. I just want to touch one th- one thing on um, you know in the next six to twelve months. Any anything else uh, coming up for you? New we can uh, look to expect from you or the flight uh, fish guys. Boy, something new. So hopefully six to twelve months. Several things, I guess. We have our new video from Devin Gilbert and I coming out oh, in cool. that time frame. Uh, fly fish food. We have all kinds of stuff going on there all the time. Nothing that's a huge standout, uh, you know, process. But we well, we release videos every week, so we'll have lots of fun stuff on our YouTube channel. And then more uh, more selfishly, I suppose, coming up in November, we head to Tasmania for the World Championships. So oh, wow. that'll be a fun one. The one I'm looking forward to. There you go. There you go. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, all right, well, and if, if people want to find you, they can just go to uh, Fly Fish Food or uh, Lance Egan Fly Fishing on Instagram. Correct. Perfect. All right, Lance, well, uh, I'm going to let you get out of here. I, You know, obviously, we, we didn't dig into everything. We kind of touched the surface, but um, I think we did get a little top 10 tips uh, that, that I think we could uh, add in there as, you know, maybe the, maybe the headline for this one. Um, I'll, I'll go back through and check it out. But, um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. Obviously, you're leading the way out there along with uh, some of the folks we mentioned today. So I'll, I'll definitely look forward to keeping in touch with you as we move forward here. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. It was a great opportunity. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes and all the links we cover, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 108. I've had some local trips that might be of interest to you, maybe closer to home. One, two, three-day trips and more uh, from guides you've heard on the show. Go to wetflyswing.com slash destination to find out how to get some more details on upcoming trips. I wanted to read a quick uh, review from Paul Garrett on iTunes. Paul says, five stars, great podcast. Highly recommend listening to these podcasts. I have learned a lot and connected with guides from the show. These podcasts are a great learning tool and a great way to pass the day if you need something else to stimulate your interest. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. If you want to leave a quick review, just go to wetflyswing.com slash review to check out how to easily uh, leave a review on the show. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. Look forward to catching up this soon. Hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.